So this is the fourth sermon in a series of messages uh, that we're doing this fall called Explore God. And in this series, we're asking big questions about Christianity. The question last week, why does God allow pain and suffering? And before that, we did, is there a God? And before that, we did, does life have a purpose? And for this week, we're asking the question, is Christianity too narrow? So let's cut right to the heart of the matter. In our gospel reading, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's pretty narrow in three ways. First of all, all the other major world religions, their founder, their founders say things like this. I am a prophet who has come to show you the way to God. But of all the major world religions, only Christianity has a founder that says, I am God and I have come to find you. So that's narrow. A second way that this verse, John chapter 14, verse 6, a second way that this is narrow is Jesus is not only narrowing Christianity with relation to himself. He's not only signaling himself out in this audacious claim. He's also claiming that he is not simply the way, the truth, and the life for Christians. He is claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life for everyone. So he's not only saying, look, for a certain group of people, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I am this for everybody, all tribes, all cultures, all ethnicities. Third, a third way this is very narrow is that if indeed Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then this puts Christianity in the very narrow position of being better than other religions. What I mean is, if Jesus is not a prophet showing us how to find God, then Christianity, if he's actually God finding us, if he's different in this way, then Christianity is a superior religion it is a better way of finding God. It's better to have an almighty being come looking for you than it is for you in this vast cosmos to have to find the creator. So, is Christianity narrow? Absolutely. There's no hiding from it. But that's not our question. Our question is not, if, is Christianity narrow? I mean, that... That doesn't take, all that takes is you just own up, right? The question is, is it too narrow? That, that's the question we're going to ask this morning. And to honestly face that question, let's look at the story Donna read to us from Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, find Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we have the apostles, Peter and John, and they're causing a stir. 
And they're causing a stir by what they're doing and by what they're saying. They're making some big claims. Uh, and, And as a result of this, the Jerusalem religious establishment is torqued. Um, They're upset. Look at verse 1, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the apostles' message, it focuses in on Jesus' resurrection. And this message gets them in trouble, and so they end up getting put on trial by the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is the religious kind of um, council that judges people, and this can be life or death stuff, all right? This is not not a secular society. Now, in this trial, the apostles are asked how they pulled it off. How did you heal this lame man? Look halfway through verse 7. By what power did you do this? And Peter speaks up and he says boldly, this is, this is in verse 10, about halfway through verse 10. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So, in other words, Jesus is not just the message they're preaching. That's what we're told in verse 1. Here we see he is also the unique power by which they're doing things. In fact, Peter doubles down on this in verse 12. He says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, you see that word that comes up twice, salvation, saved? This is fairly an important word in Christianity. It's one of the words that comes up a lot. It's frequent in the Bible. It's a pretty important word. Now, in this passage, it has two meanings. Its baseline meaning is clearly physical salvation. The dude was lame. And he got saved from that. This is not a religious thing. It's just saying his health was rescued. His health was healed. He was healed. He was restored. He was physically made whole. But then Peter leverages that kind of fundamental physical thing. He leverages it to make a much bigger claim. He goes on to say, but you see what just happened? If you're mad at us about that, look, you got a bigger issue to be mad at us about because we're not just claiming that the power of Jesus can do that. We're saying that the power of Jesus is what ultimately, totally, completely, eternally saves somebody. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And he's not talking to other lame people. He's talking to... A whole crowd of people with lots of different issues in their life. So just like this man's physical cure has come uniquely through Jesus Christ, Peter says, oh yeah, 
you need to know there's more going on here than that. Our ultimate cure, our ultimate health, our ultimate salvation comes through Jesus Christ also. And Peter and John, they emphasize the resurrection of Jesus as the demonstration of Christ's uniqueness and his unique power to do this kind of salvation in all of our lives. No one else has been raised from the dead, he's saying, and there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, now do you hear Peter echoing what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 6? Do you hear that he's kind of working within this same kind of worldview, this same view? Back in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's exactly what Peter is saying in this moment when he's on trial. He's saying Christianity is not just truth for Christians. It's truth for everybody. Now, that is just as bold of a claim in Peter and John's Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago as it is in our world today. It, it struck the ears of those people just as arrogantly as it would strike the ears of the people you work with or the people in your neighborhood, or the people that you go to cocktail parties with, or the people that you go to school with, if you were to stand up and say, there is only one way for, for this whole thing to work out, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. It, it landed with the same kind of embarrassed thud as it would if Ed were to stand up at, at some Merck meeting and just say this out of the blue. It, it, it was, it was there's not a huge difference in our cultural moments on this level. You see, Christianity grew up in a religiously pluralistic setting, more pluralistic than America today. You could be respectable in the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago if you maintained your own household gods. You can be a Christian, you can be a Buddhist, you can be Hindu, you, you can be... Muslim, you can be all, you can maintain your household gods, but you also need to participate in the imperial cult and you need to embrace the multiple expressions of religious piety that occur throughout the year. Now, we call them holidays, but they come, that root term is holy days. And back 2,000 years ago, when they had a holiday, it was a holy day. And if you wanted to have good business contacts, if you wanted to fit in with the government, if you wanted your neighbors not to think you were ticking off the gods, you better show up and participate in the plethora of civil kind of society's holy days. Now, the early Christians got in trouble because they would not participate in those practices. They lost business. They lost friends. They experienced social pressures. Why? Because they had, exclu they had these beliefs that were so narrow. They were very exclusivistic. And this was one of the ways that Christianity was different from the other religions. In the eyes of the ancient Greco-Roman world, this kind of exclusivistic, narrow stance of the early Christians was not only odd, it was dangerous. It disrupted the peace. It produced violence. 
You see, in those cultures, there was an understanding that different ethnicities and different cultures might have tribal gods and loyalties. They were fine with that. But what baffled them is that Christianity claimed it was not tied to any one particular culture, any one particular ethnicity. It transcended those traditional tribal barriers and it laid claim on every tribe in every ethnicity and it claimed its exclusive allegiance to what Christians called the one true God. Now what about our society today? The predominant view of the religions of different belief systems in our secular age is that all of the different religions They're basically the same. And no one religion has a corner on the truth. To say my religion is the truth strikes the ear in our society today as arrogant and probably dangerous. Um, There's an ancient Buddhist parable where a king in northern India gathered five or six Men who had been blind their entire lives into his courtyard. And he brought in an elephant which they had never heard of or never seen. And he allows each blind. He's got them spread out. And he tells them to reach out and touch this elephant. One grabs the ear. One grabs the trunk. Another grabs the leg. And the king asks them one by one. So what's an elephant like? And according to what part they felt, they answered. You know, the guy with the trunk in his hand says, well, it's, it, it, an elephant is like a snake. You know, it's kind of long and flexible and wiggly. Another guy says, no, it's not. An elephant is like the stump of a tree. He's got a hold of the leg. So you get the point. And, and, and this lines up, this view of religions lines up with our deep moral intuitions about spiritual truth today about religions today all the religions think they see the whole elephant the whole truth but nobody really knows anything but a little tiny bit of the truth now this view this idea it's really good on a certain level there is a there is an aspect of deep insight here that the truth is bigger than any one person or any one religion can totally grasp Absolutely true. The problem with this way of evaluating religions is that it's internally contradictory. It's self-contradictory. Let let me show you what I mean. This way of talking, it, it seems humble and gracious. But the problem is, it's not. It's very narrow. You see, the, to- the story is told from the viewpoint of the king. The king sees the elephant. The king sits in judgment on this wise man and that wise man and that blind man who are each picking part. And so here's our sophisticated modern argument saying to Christianity, you don't see it all. Don't be so arrogant to think you see it all. To Islam, don't be so arrogant that you think you see it all. And to Buddhism, don't be so arrogant that you think it all. Look who's being arrogant in this moment. The one who says... I actually see it all, and you don't. See, that's the problem with the argument. The problem with the argument is that you're acting as if 
Everybody else claims a good view, but only you have the total view. You're acting as if you yourself have the very kind of superior knowledge that you're condemning others for claiming they have. That's the problem with that view. It cloaks, it hides behind humility, but it is a profoundly ethnocentric, arrogant, modern, Anglo view. Sitting in judgment over all the others as if they're not being humble, but it is. So yes, Christianity says it's superior to other religions. But at least it says it. At least it owns it. At least it goes right out there and says it. It doesn't try to hide it behind a, a, a fake humility. Now going back to Acts chapter 4. Peter puts his cards on the table. He was not preaching an innocuous spiritual message that would easily fit into the culture of his time. And, and he takes lots of heat for this. The Jewish authorities are simply amazed at his audacity. They couldn't deny that he had done something powerful, but they totally rejected his interpretation of it. So they come up with a plan to stop Peter and John. Listen to verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they tell them essentially, keep your beliefs to yourself. Keep it private. Don't bring these strongly held beliefs into public. Now Peter and John say that's impossible. Look at verse 19. Hey guys, you judge whether it's right before God to listen to you or rather to God. As far as we're concerned, we can't stop speaking about, and notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say we can't speaking about what we believe. He says we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Now this is really important. Why couldn't they keep to themselves? Because the gospel is an immensely public message based on public events that inevitably lead to a public faith. The gospel message can't be privatized. Now, at this point, here in our Western civilization, we tend to think that there's a sharp distinction between fact and values. This goes way back in the Enlightenment to Immanuel Kant. We have this idea in Western civilization, whether you've ever been taught it or not, it's in your bones, you feel it, you live with it. We have this idea that there's a sharp kind of difference between facts and values. Facts are things we can prove, so you're allowed to be dogmatic about facts. Values are beliefs, so you have to hold them with a humbleness. Facts are public, values are private. So you could stand up in a university class and, say, and uh, if somebody stands up and says 2 plus 2 equals 137, you could laugh. Like if, if the teacher called on the student, the student said that, you could laugh and you could say, no it doesn't. 2 plus 2 equals 4. If somebody were to stand up and say, Sex outside of marriage is okay if you laugh and say, no, it isn't. It's a sin. Do you see how that would play out different? Why? Because our whole society has agreed that we will allow people to be dogmatic on facts, 
But if you try to be dogmatic on a thing that we put in the category of belief, that's rude. That's arrogant. Now, I'm not saying you can do it rudely. Even if you corrected 2 plus 2 equals 37 nicely, you could probably get away with it. Um, but there is no way you can correct um, somebody's religious belief in a secular setting and get away with it. Be as nice as you want to be. You would get pounced. You would, be, you would be making a social faux pas. Why is this? Because going back to Immanuel Kant, our society is bought into this sharp dichotomy between fact and values, and we've entered into a, a communal agreement that you can be dogmatic about facts. Facts are public. Facts are arguable. But beliefs, hold them loosely, hold them humbly, and don't be dogmatic of them. Now, the problem is that the gospel doesn't allow itself to be categorized as a value. Peter and John did not put their life on the line for a value. They didn't risk everything for their opinion on what's valuable or not. Their whole message says we can't be quiet about a thing that happened. This is fact land. They try, you, you see how they're pushed, keep it to yourself, and they say, I'm not standing in that category. They say, we saw, they start talking fact land. We saw something with our eyes. We heard something. Their whole message is about the factness of Christianity. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time and history was a public event, and it, it's public in its implications for everyone. If the gospel could be relegated to a value, then it would not have caused anybody any problems in the Greco-Roman world. The gospel doesn't fit in the fact-value divide of our age. Early Christian, Christian preaching was quite emphatic. God calls all people, everywhere, in every ethnicity, in every government, in every society, in every people group, in every tribe, in every language, to repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. So yes, Christianity is narrow. It is, and it always has been. But the question is, is it too narrow? Well, the proof is in the pudding. As you keep reading the book of Acts, you see this beautiful paradox begin to unfold. Christian narrowness. Christian radical exclusivism opens up into the most inclusive life possible. That's what happens when you keep reading the book of Acts. All I've done up until this point is I've said, guilty as charged, Christianity is narrow. Now, if we're going to ask, is it too narrow? What I've tried to show is, first of all, there is no non-narrow place. Because everybody who's standing up and acting as if they're broad, they're narrow too. They're standing in judgment. They're saying the broad view is the right view. That's, that's a so now what I want to say is, well, let's, okay, let's see which one actually works. Let's see which narrowness, which, which really plays out. And when you look in the book of Acts, as Christianity 
moves across cultural lines and tribal lines and, and, and lines as it moves throughout the whole Greco-Roman world, what we see is this amazing paradox that this group of people with this deep, narrow exclusivism, what they begin to live is a radical inclusivism. Now, to explain this, I'm going to totally steal from another preacher, a far better preacher. Um, his name is Tim Keller. He's in, a preacher in New York. He does it this way to try to explain this paradox. He says, 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire believed everyone had their own God. And that's a very open stance. No one has the truth. Everybody has their own God. The Christians come along and they say, oh yeah, there's really only one God. And we got him. So the Greco-Roman world, it looks on the surface like it's a broader worldview. A more inclusive worldview. And the Christians look, when you stop right there in the analysis, they look uh, narrow-minded. They look uh, closed. They look like fundamentalists or something. But the way it then plays out is a beautiful paradox. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, the poor were despised. In the Christian world, the poor were loved. In the Greco-Roman world, women were looked down on. In the Christian world, women were empowered. In the Greco-Roman world, a freeborn man could have sex with any woman that wasn't a noble man's wife. In the Christian world, everybody, children, women, and men, had sovereignty over their bodies. In the Greco-Roman world, the races and the classes were kept apart. In the Christian world, they were brought together promiscuous, promiscuously. We're all about to come to this table. We're not going to line up in some caste system. When the plagues came in the second century, the people were dying in the streets and in the cities. And the streets were littered with people abandoned by their loved ones. It was the Christians who stayed. It was the Christians who, in many cases, nursing the sick, brought the diseases on themselves and died in place of those with sickness. So think about this. On the one hand, Christians had the absolute most narrow worldview because they thought they had the truth. And on the other hand, the Greco-Roman world said, we don't know who has the truth. Everybody's got their own. And then how did it work out? What did it lead to? Where was it safer to live? In the Christian world or in the Greco-Roman way? It was safer for women. It was safer for children. It was safer for everybody except the empowered dudes at the top. Now, why did Christianity live the most peace-loving, the most generous, the most sacrificial, the most inclusive lifestyle possible? How does this work? How does it actually happen that you can have such a radically narrow view at the middle of you, but it actually produced this kind of wide generosity? How does that work? All I've done is showed that when we look at the historical record, that's what actually happened. But how? What's the inner logic to it? What, how does this actually play out? Here's the answer. Some of you remember that right after 9-11, so many people were saying the problem with violence in the world was religious fundamentalism. And they were equating um, militant Islam with fundamentalism and anybody who held 
kind of fundamentalism, whether it was another religion, you were like, just like them. The idea was that if you're a fundamentalist, you really believe you have the truth and you're dangerous. It will make you kill people. But what I've tried to show you is that everybody's a fundamentalist. In a way, everybody believes fundamentals. Everybody's got a view on truth. Fundamentalism doesn't necessarily lead to terrorism. What leads to terror, it depend, what, it, what it depends on is not do you have fundamental beliefs that you hold with an ironclad confidence. What, what, what matters is what is the fundamental belief you hold with ironclad confidence. For example, have you ever seen an Amish terrorist? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it just sounds funny to even say it, doesn't it? Now, if the Amish aren't fundamentalists, I, I don't know who is. So why will there, be, why will there never be an, uh, an Amish terrorist? Because if your fundamental is a man dying on the cross for his enemies, if that's the thing you're holding with a fundamental ironclad confidence, if the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man sacrificing and praying for his enemies as he's dying for them, as he's being killed by them, if that sinks into your heart of hearts, if your deepest, most fundamental belief is God taking on flesh and dying for his enemies and forgiving the jerks and forgiving the mean people and forgiving the people that are treating him unjustly, if that's the fundamental, it's going to produce the kind of life that the early Christians lived. It's a fundamentalist that is narrow that opens up into the widest possible inclusivism. It's an, it's, it's an exclusive belief that opens up into tolerance. Now here's the deal. On our university campuses right now, is it opening up into tolerance? No, it's not. There's a weird thing happening at universities right now where suddenly there's kind of a, a vindictive protectionism move where you can't speak something that's going to hurt me. So it's not only we won't engage, it's you can't even talk if what you're going to say potentially hurts me. What we're seeing is that when you try to put tolerance at the middle, ironically, it opens up into intolerance. But when you put the crucified Jesus Christ in the middle, it can actually give us what our society most wants right now, which is tolerance and respect. And this is what we see when we read the book of Acts. As the gospel rolls across cultures, it doesn't obliterate cultures. Do you know that the most culturally diverse religion in the world is Christianity? All the ethnographic studies are showing right now that Christianity is the most diverse religion. Not just diverse in its aesthetic, like there's black people and there's white people and there's brown people and there's all, you know, spotted people and there's different groups. But it's actually diverse in its culture. That it doesn't obliterate cultures. If that, if you see, if Jesus on the cross sinks into your heart, it's going to produce a wide mercy. If you know that you're accepted and that you're loved, 
and that you have been loved by the God of the universe, then suddenly you can live the most inclusive life possible, but it's flowing out of the most exclusive claim ever made. This is the truth. The truth is a God who became weak and who loved and died for the people who opposed him. And he forgave them. And when you take that into the center of your heart, you will be at the heart of the solution our world wants right now. When Christians affirm that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we are not claiming to know everything. We're claiming to be on the way and we are inviting others to join us as we press forward toward the fullness of the truth, toward the day when we shall be known, when we will know others as we're known. 